0: g'day and welcome to the sea creatures podcast a show all about the amazing animals that live beneath the waves each episode we chat about a specific sea creature with a guest who has spent time and interacted with this ocean animal Our guests range from marine biologists to divers to underwater photographers, citizen scientists, and people that have an intense passion for marine life. My name is Matt Testoni, and I'm all of the above. And joining me for this episode of the Sea Creatures podcast is Jodie Rummer, and she's an associate professor of marine biology at JCU up in Townsville on the Great Barrier Reef. And we're going to be talking all about the epaulette shark. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Matt. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here.
0: So epaulette sharks, they're kind of cat shark. But before we jump into that, Tell us what kind of drove your love of epaulette sharks and you to study
1: them and do research on them. Well, the epaulette shark is a really cool shark species for several reasons. They aren't your typical shark that you might see on television with, you know, a mouth full of teeth. They aren't living in the open ocean with a gigantic size associated with them. And they're pretty tough at the same time. So even though they might not look super sharky and super bitey, like what we might see on television, they are super tough. And the reason they're super tough is because of the shallow environments in which they live. And those are the main reasons why I'm really interested in the epaulette shark, because they're not your typical shark and they're still tough at the same time.
0: I was thinking before, you know, people are gonna see epaulette shark episode, they're gonna be thinking, Ooh, another, you know, like the tiger shark or the great white, but they're actually quite, yeah, as you said, like they live in the shallows and they're quite small and harmless. Describe what an epaulette shark is.
1: No, you're exactly right. An epaulette shark is relatively harmless. They would more scratch or suck an abrasion on your arm. So they are quite harmless, which makes them really great to work with in the laboratory and in field settings as well. They also don't grow to be very big. So we might be looking at a meter or so in total length, and those would be the fully grown adults. And handling them actually isn't that tough either. They're more squirmy than anything. So I would say they are more amphibian, reptile-like than your typical shark. Pretty neat in that respect. And we can collect them from the shallows. They're usually hiding in the little reef crevices, little nooks and crannies within the shallows. So the challenge really is finding their hiding spaces more than anything.
0: You mentioned like they kind of crawl around and stuff. And so what do they eat and that kind of thing?
1: So also sort of with their snake-like squirmy behavior, their mouth is more on the underside of their body. And so they would probably act a little bit more like a ray in the way they eat, sort of that vacuum cleaner-like strategy. So they're getting little shrimp and tiny little fish and other little crustaceans from the sand or the the bottom substrates where they're sucking those food items up. Um, So that's typically what they would be eating when they're in the laboratory They eat pretty well. Uh, We treat our animals quite well in that respect. So pieces of cut prawn that they're hand-fed every two days or so. So they do really well in the laboratory in that respect as well.
0: So you said that you hand-feed them?
1: Yeah, we like to monitor how much they're eating. And so we usually will weigh out the food that we have thought out for them. We're really conscious of all of the different nutrients they're getting so that it can as closely replicate what they would be getting in their natural habitat as possible. And prawns seem to be really good for that. But we want to get an estimate of the percentage of food they're getting for their body mass so that we can feed them consistently over the course of whatever experiment we're doing.
0: What does an epaulette shark in the lab's habitat look like?
1: <laughs> well, you know, our, our laboratory setup isn't a beautiful aquarium that you might visit as a tourist somewhere. Our laboratory setups are quite boring, but we do have structures in the aquaria because they do like to hide. So we'll make different pieces of PVC pipe for them to hide into, and the funny thing is about these sharks is no matter how many structures we have in a tank, they all seem to crowd and cuddle into one. So they—they're not only you know pretty cute anyway, but when they all cuddle into one big piece of PVC, it's quite remarkable to see all of their little faces poking out at the same time.
0: Wow! Do, do they do that in the wild? Kind of congregate or not?
1: We don't know. When we've been out snorkeling and wading through the shallows, we usually don't see them together. And so that's something that we're quite curious about. So what is this cuddling behavior? <laughs> it doesn't sound very scientific, but what is it about being in captivity perhaps, or different types of structures that really promotes them to, to congregate together like that? Now we're doing a lot of research in our lab right now with pregnant females. Now, These sharks are egg layers, so they have the eggs inside them, and then they lay the eggs over the course of their reproductive cycle. But we're looking at some of their behaviors when they're pregnant as well. It's it's really interesting to have this species in the laboratory because they are so easy to observe, and they just spark so many more questions for our research program.
0: What are some kind of cool little stories you've noticed?
1: Well, right now we have nine sharks in the lab. So we've got four females that are laying eggs pretty regularly, and five males. And I guess generally the coolest thing about this shark species, whether they're in the field, in their natural habitat, or in the lab, they do it there as well, is they use their fins, their pectoral fins, modified to just sort of walk along the the surface of the bottom of their tanks. And it's quite amazing to watch. So they're not swimming midwater and paddling their fins like you would expect for other types of sharks or or even other fishes. But they're using those modified fins and crawling along the bottom of the tank. And they do that when they're looking for food. And they do that when they're looking to find their shelter to get back into to cuddle with their buddies. So they are often called the walking sharks for that reason.
0: Wow. I was doing a bit of research on them, and so they're not only just walking on the sea floor, are they?
1: No, they will walk out of a shallow reef flat into the air, you know, where there's no water, across an aerial exposed reef into a new reef flat if they need to. So they're they're pretty amazing in that they're basically getting zero oxygen when they're not in the water, and they readily get out of the water walk to another pool and and hop in so David Attenborough made the shark species quite famous when he was down at Heron Island which is in the southern part of the Great Barrier Reef filming the epaulette shark doing exactly that walking from one little rock pool to another rock pool along the reef flat
0: wow it's just amazing so how are they able to do that
1: well They can tolerate zero oxygen for a period of time that would kill us humans. So, that's very special superhero talent that they can tolerate such low levels, even zero oxygen. And that's not really typical in shark species, to be honest. We've been looking at various other tropical shark species for this type of low oxygen tolerance, and we just don't see it. And we think that in part it's because they need to do so well in those shallow water environments in order to make them their own i mean they dominate the shallows but they have to tolerate those challenging shallow water conditions as well the shallow reef flat at night gets very low in oxygen and the reason for that is the coral uses photosynthesis during the day like plants and so the coral is actually producing oxygen during the day and making really nice oxygen rich environment during the day. But at night, when there's no sun available for photosynthesis, the coral starts using a lot of oxygen. And when there's a lot of coral, they use a lot of oxygen. So those shallow areas get really low in oxygen at night, but those epaulette sharks, they're fine. So in order to be able to live there, they have to have those physiological adaptations to cope with such challenging conditions. The other thing that happens In that realm, with coral using photosynthesis during the day, using the sun, they're taking up carbon dioxide. They breathe carbon dioxide and they release oxygen. Well, again, they do the opposite of that at night. And so they're producing a lot of carbon dioxide at night that the sharks also have to deal with. And so they've been a great candidate for understanding how other sharks might cope with ocean acidification. So that's high carbon dioxide that's happening to the oceans because the oceans are absorbing so much of the human-caused carbon dioxide from our atmosphere into the oceans and decreasing the ocean's pH. And so here is a, a perfect example of an animal that already does that in its natural habitat. How are they doing that? And we found they do really, really well. They're not affected in terms of their metabolism, they're not affected in terms of how they use energy, their sheltering habits, their feeding behaviors, nothing is affected. And we think that they're just really good at a physiological level. So inside their blood, their biochemistry, all of their organ systems, they're really good at that. And the same goes for dealing with low oxygen. They can actually just change how blood flows around their body, they can shut down certain parts of their body that's not essential, and maintain other areas of their body that are essential during those low oxygen periods of time. So they've been a great candidate for at least a couple decades of research for investigating how they cope with such challenging conditions.
0: Wow, that, now that is a tough shock, as <laughs> you mentioned in the beginning. That is a very tough shark. They
1: are a tough. They're very tough shark and and because they have to be, they have to cope with those challenging conditions of the shallows. If they don't, then what's their option? They move to a deeper habitat. They leave their little hiding place. and They get exposed to predators. Like I said earlier, they're not a big shark. They're not very bitey. They're not very intimidating. And so they could easily be another shark's lunch in a moment's time or even a, a big fish. So they really depend on coping with these challenging conditions in their shallow habitats in order to survive. And it's not just the other aquatic predators that are looming around the deeper parts of the reef waiting for for a naive one to venture out, but it's also the aerial predators as well. There's this really famous Australian geographic photo of a sea eagle with an epaulette shark in its talons. It just flew down, swooped down, scooped it up. It must've ventured too far out of its hiding spot and took it up into the air, right in its talons. So they're mindful of not only aquatic predators, but also aerial predators. Wow,
0: I guess you can't really run Run very fast when you're an epaulette shark and you see an eagle coming down, can you?
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, they're just the walking shark, not the running shark. (laughs)
0: And so with kind of climate change, acidifying the ocean and stuff, do you think like, are they going to, are they a species that's more likely to survive with these changing conditions or is temperature going to affect them in other ways?
1: No, that's a great question. Um, And that's, that's exactly how we started the research. I had a really amazing colleague that I, I still work with quite a bit today. Um, down south in the southern part of the Great Barrier Reef. And and that's where I got some of these ideas to work with the epaulette shark in the first place, um, Professor Gillian Renshaw. And she's been a, a fantastic mentor of mine over the years. And she pioneered that first research on how this particular shark species copes with zero oxygen. And they came at it from more of a biomedical perspective. They work a lot with um, organ donors and different problems that you might see with, with human ailments when a particular tissue, maybe the brain, maybe the heart is not getting enough oxygen. So tissue ischemia. And they wanted to find out, well, what mechanisms in the epaulette shark are protecting all of its body systems when it doesn't get oxygen, and might that help us understand how organ donation could work better, or uh, if a human is coping with a stroke, for example, and is not getting oxygen to brain? You know, all of these different uh, ailments that humans get that are related to low oxygen or zero oxygen for a period of time, and so that's where that research started, and it got us thinking. Well yeah, this this epaulette shark is a product of its environment. And so we started with ocean acidification. So we knew that with low oxygen, these sharks were also facing high carbon dioxide. And we started a great research program right there uh, with seeing how this particular shark species would physiologically and behaviorally cope with ocean acidification conditions. And the media went crazy with it. They said, oh, well, we've got the shark. It's going to do great under climate change. is such good news. And then we started investigating temperature. And then the bad news started. And it seems like elevated temperature is their kryptonite. They are very much living on the edge of what they can cope with in terms of elevated temperatures. And so that's where we've been taking our research. Over the past several years, Uh, it started with a really small pilot study where we were rearing the eggs of epaulette sharks under various temperature conditions and then looking at not only development during those conditions in the egg, but then what the hatchlings looked like as well. And the study that prompted that was that hatchlings that were reared under sort of future climate change conditions, mid-century, end-of-century conditions, they hatched with a really weird color pattern. They didn't have the really obvious round circles on their cheeks, which is characteristic of an epaulette shark, and it's their namesake as well. They didn't have really specific and distinct bands and stripes and spots as compared to a shark that was hatching under current day conditions, we thought, oh, this is really weird. I mean, it essentially looked like if you were to splash water onto a watercolor painting and everything just smudged. And so that that got us thinking, well, what is it about temperature that is maybe adding additional costs to these developing embryos early in their life? That is, Breaking havoc on some of these systems that might be really essential for their survival, such as camouflage, such as patterns and coloration. And so then one of my current PhD students started a really big project looking at every aspect of early development that we could measure in these eggs under current day, mid-century, and end-of-century conditions. And that's where things got really alarming because The hatchlings were hatching a lot earlier if they were reared under end of century conditions. The embryos while they were living in the egg under end of century conditions were using the yolk a lot faster than they would have. they're using a lot more energy. They were requiring a lot more oxygen. They didn't grow as big as they would have under current day conditions. And then when those hatchlings hatched quite a bit earlier, they needed to look for food a lot sooner than their current day counterparts. And they had higher metabolic costs as well. So they not only needed to look for food a lot sooner, they didn't have any energy reserves to go off of, and they also needed more energy as well due to the high temperatures. And so that was probably the most recently published alarming study about temperature being their kryptonite.
0: Wow. So I guess like when they're in the wild, they hatch early. They don't have camouflage. So easy for other predators. And they're also more likely to starve as they try and like learn their way around the reef, I guess.
1: Well, that's the thing. In a lot of the sharks that we've been investigating over the past eight or nine years that I've been working on climate change and sharks and performance. What we think is a lot of either newborn, so those that are born with mothers that give live birth, or even those that hatch from eggs, they have a little window of time where they can still live off of the energy reserves either that came from their mother if they were live birth or energy reserves that came from the yolk while they're developing in an egg, you know, just like what we see with a chicken egg if we eat that, they can live off that energy reserve for a period of time. And we think that's this window of time for them to suss out their environment and learn how to become a shark. I mean, whether they're the cuddly, snaky, squirmy type of shark like the epaulette shark or more of our typical reef shark like the blacktip reef shark that we examine a lot with some of our other studies. Regardless, they have to learn how to be a shark. They have to learn how to hunt. They have to know how to identify friend from foe. There are very certain behaviors that they have to learn and have a very short window of time to do that. So it's good if they don't have to find food right away. Now, these epaulette shark hatchlings under end of century conditions, they had to look for food right away. I mean, they're not hatching with that knowledge. They're not hatching with the know-how as to how to hunt or how to identify friend from foe. So, yeah, in the wild, that could be really daunting.
0: Yeah. And so you mentioned their kind of camouflage. So I was kind of reading they've got that kind of big spot on them just to go back to kind of a little bit of what they are, because I'm trying to picture the change. And so they've got that kind of big spot. Is that similar to like how a moth has an eye on its body, on its pattern?
1: Yeah, you know, you're right. And we haven't found a lot of research about this yet. It's definitely a great topic for someone to investigate at some point. But if you look at the epaulette shark and you see these big round circles on each sort of cheek of the epaulette shark, And it's a really crisp circle. It's not just a splotch. It's a really crisp, almost perfect circle. And from other animals within the animal kingdom, we think that these might be false eye spots, make them look bigger. And so if you see these big spots on a moth, for example, it might make them look like a much bigger animal than they really are and fend off predators for that reason. And so then thinking, well, that doesn't really feel very camouflage Like that's not going to help them hide or blend in with their habitat on a reef flat, right? So what might they be trying to look like with these big, huge circles on the sides of their cheeks? Well, stingrays have spiracles that are quite prominent. And so you see a stingray maybe from the air, And maybe it's those two big spiracles that you see on that pancake swimming in the, in the shallows. So maybe they're trying to look like stingrays. So then they would be too big for a bird to swoop down and grab them. Perhaps we have no idea yet. It would be great if someone did, I would be all ears, but that's, that's one of our sort of working hypotheses right now. And that maybe they're trying to look like a stingray and that that might, make them look like an awkward size for an aerial predator to swoop down and grab them. Now, the other coloration and patterning that an epaulette shark has are more like grayish, brownish bands and spots that would help them camouflage right into the reef flat with the algae and all of the different colors and structures of a reef flat. That makes absolute sense, but those big circles on their cheeks, we're still not quite sure.
0: That's so cool. I love like little ocean mysteries where it seems so obvious, but really it's not, is it?
1: Well, every time we do a study, we end up with 20 more questions. So I think that's, I think that's the sign of a of good science or really good job security, I guess, because we get into science because we're curious and it just keeps going.
0: <laughs> yeah. And so while the the spot is kind of like an unknown, do you have any kind of really cool facts or unusual facts apart from the fact that they can walk and change all their, like how their blood flows for oxygen and all that kind of thing. Are there any other cool facts about epaulet sharks that you love?
1: Well, we've been having a really good time understanding how the mothers are laying eggs and their whole uh, reproductive and hormonal cycle. I have phenomenal PhD student, Carolyn Wheeler, who this is her, this is her baby no pun intended. <laughs> so she did all of the work first on the, the eggs and the hatchlings, and then rewind, let's look at what the mothers are doing and the energetic requirements of producing all of those eggs inside them and all of the hormonal changes that go on in the mothers during this period of time. And the energetic costs to doing all of that as well. And the timing, that's all so important. And so the cool thing that Perlin's brought to our team with this is using a medical ultrasound to examine the females to see how many eggs they have. And it's very similar to what a human female would undergo if she was going to the obstetrician to see how her baby was going when she was pregnant. And so that's been really, really cool part of our research lately, using technology that we understand very well for humans to apply that to the sharks to see how many eggs they might be producing and expect how many eggs they might lay and when that might occur.
0: Wow. I just have the best image of kind of like a puppy. You kind of roll it over and scratch its belly, but instead of you've got this wiggly little shark you're kind of giving an ultrasound to. That's amazing. Like how many eggs are we talking about? Do they usually lay?
1: Well, that's another thing that Carolyn's been thinking quite a bit about. How many eggs they will lay for each cycle. Oftentimes it's a couple eggs and which egg gets laid first. So I can't say at this point, they are doing a very good job at laying eggs in the lab right now. I think she was getting really close to a hundred eggs from these Four sharks and that's only been since the middle of 2020. So we haven't had these sharks in the lab for that long. And she was able to get them laying eggs very quickly and during their regular season, just like they would be laying eggs out in the wild and they haven't stopped yet. So she's waiting for them to be finished for the season and they haven't stopped. So they must be very comfortable in the lab. But that's definitely one of the questions we have is how many eggs they will lay and what are these energetic costs of laying eggs? In the wild, they have a very distinct season when they're laying eggs. Well, when the males and females are reproducing, and then when the females are laying eggs, and then when those eggs hatch as well. That's all very important in terms of the season. Are these eggs hatching at the hottest part of the year? And if they're hatching earlier than they should, because it's a lot warmer. What does that mean for the survival of the hatchlings? Then if we rewind and look at the females, if they are laying eggs during the warmest part of the year, is that going to be more expensive and more energetically taxing on these females if they have to do that? And then what would that mean for the survival of those, those eggs and those hatchlings?
0: Well, I'm excited to kind of hear um, more about them in the future and like what you find. But apart from, so apart from the JCU lab, where you've got these awesome little epaulettes, if people wanted to see epaulette sharks, where would they go? And like, what would be a few little hints you would give from your experience of kind of finding them in the wild?
1: Well, we usually look in the wild for epaulette sharks in the shallow reef flats. Um, right here off of Townsville, we have Magnetic Island, which is, you know, great for a little weekend getaway. You can take a ferry over, takes maybe 30, 40 minutes. And there's some pretty decent snorkeling right around the island where you can see epaulette sharks looking in the little nooks and crannies. They are usually sort of sleeping in the daytime and a little bit more active at night. And so that's been something that we've been looking into as well. And so the time that you're out, usually you have a better chance of seeing them at night versus the day. Most aquariums have epaulette sharks because they are so easy to keep in captivity. And so aquariums are a great first place to look because they are very predictable in how they act. Uh, They get along well. As I said, they'll all bunch up together and cuddle in one piece of PVC pipe. Usually aquariums have much nicer structure and much more beautiful places for them to hide than are very experimental laboratory <laughs> studies, but aquariums do really, really well holding light sharks. And so you'll see them in most aquariums around the world.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, that's probably is, if you want to just see one straight off, is probably the best option. Because I know I've seen a few cat sharks in Melbourne, which are, are quite similar, but, you know, you do a thousand dives and you see them twice, even though there's there's hundreds around. So,
1: Well, and the thing is, when you have a sh- small shark, such as the epaulette shark or cat shark, that isn't very interrogating or intimidating as a shark, they're hiding. <laughs> that's their evo. So, if we don't see them, that's probably a good thing because they are in their hiding places. That is what makes it a little bit more difficult. They're cryptic for a reason.
0: Yeah. That or, and I just thought that or just look at the top of the reef when it's low yeah. tide
1: <laughs> and they're yeah. walking along. Yeah, Heron Island down in the southern part of the Great Barrier Reef is probably one of the best hotspots for epaulette sharks. But I mean, the egg cases are often found as well. Usually by the time they are found or discovered by humans, they don't have anything else left in them. And so they're often called mermaids' purses, but... I've, I've found egg cases while diving before as well. And sometimes you'll see other fish sort of picking at them. Usually I'll shoo the other fish away. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's our shark species. You need to leave. But that's another really common way to see uh, at least one life stage of these types of sharks is, is through their egg case. And they're pretty interesting to look at anyway. I mean, these egg cases, well, under current day conditions, the epaulette shark usually is in the egg for about... 120 days or so. So that's a good chunk of time that that egg needs to stay camouflage, stay where it's at. It can't be drifting around all over the place and hopefully nothing's going to find it and eat it while that little embryo is developing inside that egg case. So that's really important.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a long time for an egg case to sit on the ocean floor or in the ocean without kind of being nibbled by any number of other things. So I know different sharks have different like strategies for their egg casing, but how do the epaulette shark egg casing stay in position and not drift away with the current?
1: No, that's a great question. How they stay in position, how they don't drift away. We look at the consistency of these egg cases and they're very fibrous, pretty tough. But in addition to that, in order for the embryo to develop properly, the egg also has to stay oriented in a certain way. Like there's an up and there's a down. And so that's pretty important I think, wow, are these females laying eggs so strategically that they're not only hidden from predators and tucked away and, and the fibers are per- perfectly adhering to the nooks and crannies of the, of the reef so that they don't drift away, but they're also laying them so that the egg is perfectly oriented with its top side at the top and it's bottom side at the bottom so the embryo develops perfectly it makes me even more in awe as to nature and and evolution and how everything has to be so perfect in order for survival to happen and it's just absolutely remarkable in that respect that we do have so many successful hatchlings given the odds are stacked against them and I mean that's another reason we studied this species in the first place as well. They develop in eggs, and during that 125 days, under current day temperatures, at least 100 100 days if they're developing in end of century conditions. But they can't move if they don't like the conditions. They have to deal with what they they have around them. And so, yeah, going back to one of the first things we talked about today, Matt is. They are tough they don't look tough but they are really tough
0: yeah unless you orientate the egg upside down in, in which case they're not so tough yeah right
1: don't yeah don't orient it upside down don't shake it around don't show it to a big fish you know there there are a few things but uh
0: i guess it's a really good lesson too that if you do find eggs of any kind of shark or any kind of thing down underwater is to do what scuba divers and snorkelers should do and never like touch or move anything. I guess that like kind of really reiterates that for me, especially.
1: Well, just like what we know now about any of the oils in our skin or the sunscreen we might be using and how damaging it can be to the coral if we touch it. It's just like that with everything underwater, really. It's such a fine balance within an ecosystem like that, that we're coming in as strangers. We're not meant to be there. And so... We do keep our hands off of everything underwater for those reasons. And then now with all of this knowledge we have about intricacies of early development, at least in this particular species, any little alteration, wow, it could have great ramifications. Yeah. Well,
0: that kind of brings us to the end of the episode. But if anyone wants to learn more about the research you do and the lab and all that kind of stuff, What should they do and where should they go?
1: Well, our research program here at James Cook University in Australia, and well, it is worldwide is called PhysioShark. And it's because we investigate physiology in sharks. And so you can find us on social media, like Instagram and Facebook under PhysioShark. And we do tweet about our work as well. And you can also find us at www.physioshark.org.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you very much for being on the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Sea Creatures Podcast is hosted, edited, and produced by myself, Matt Testoni. If you like the show, check out our Instagram, Sea Creatures underscore Podcast, and sign up to our Patreon, which is patreon.com/slash Sea Podcast, where you can help support the show. Music by the amazing Dan Musil, and executive production by Georgia McGrath. Also, massive thanks to our current Patreons, Sally, Jeremy, Callie, Natalia Warren, Annalise, Madeline Thomas, Samantha and Josie You can also check out my Instagram which has all kinds of cool sea creature photos at matt underscore to stony underscore photography Coming up next time on the Sea Creatures Podcast one of my favourite underwater photographers the legendary Scott Portelli is going to be talking all about the leafy sea dragon This has been the Sea Creatures Podcast Over and out